Thank you, Vince. Appreciate that. Which one do we want to go with? The handheld? Okay. Hey, you're our guinea pigs. So we're going to try this for a little bit. And uh, we're just, uh, we had a, also, we had a, what a great uh, teen activity uh, last night, their teen Christmas party. And I saw uh, through someone's like social media page that uh, they the fun, all kinds of fun games. I'm going to have this ready just in case while we're doing the pleasantries here. All right. Um, and uh, so we should, uh, Mike wrapped a bunch of stuff in like saran wrap. Some of them were gift cards, some were presents, things like that. But some of it was also trash. And so they thought they were getting something that was good. And they're all excited, you know, they had to roll dice. And, you know, and so when it came their turn, they start unraveling as quick as they can and they open up a piece of trash. I mean, nothing like that to uh, get excited about, you know, Christmas. So uh, just, I, I love this time of year. We might play that game with the adults at the home group. And depending on how well you listen today will depend on how many pieces of trash uh, are in it. <laughs> no, so, uh, but have a, we're going to have a great time, and uh, I am, uh, I'm just, I'm just so excited about just what God's doing. I, I've kind of teased a little bit when it, when, when you talk about like the sound and the speakers that I have been, just hear me, hear me out, okay, patiently annoyed, right, for about a decade, okay, and uh, so I don't want to stomp on uh, just my gratitude for those that kind of did things before me and uh, put massive, you know, speakers up there and, and all that, and so I'm very, very thankful for uh, what we uh, had inherited here, and so, but over the last, I don't know, about last 10 years, every once in a while, there'd just be, uh, just kind of, it would just be frustrating, and so uh, I'm thankful for uh, this upgrade and uh, just the, 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 the many, uh, just the time and effort that has gone into it, and we trust that the Lord's going to use it for His honor and His glory. When it comes to the median of sound and preaching the gospel, we need to make sure that it can be actually be heard and that it can be heard clearly and well. And so uh, we work on our sermons and all that throughout the week. And then if it's kind of going in and out constantly, uh, that can be a tool that Satan uses to distract. And so uh, it was in dire need of an upgrade. And uh, so uh, I am, I'm, I'm just thankful, uh, thankful for it. Well, we're going to continue in our series here this morning that we entitled Christ Before the Line. And so we are, we're looking at the life of Christ before the line of B.C. to A.D. And we kind of talked a little bit last week about at something that is before Christ, which is what B.C. stands for, before Christ. How can we look at Him before that? And, uh, and we looked all the way back to Genesis chapter number 3. And right after the fall, right after the uh, kind of the, uh, just the, the stench of sin and then death to, to rescue them, to clothe them, uh, you have the grace of God coming in and the plan of God beginning to unfold in this seed of the woman and being uh, Jesus Christ. And so this morning, we're going to kind of move a little bit further through the Old Testament, and we're going to look at the Lamb of God the Lamb of God. And Christians everywhere, I would say that they recognize the Lamb as a familiar biblical image. Kind of, kind of Christians all over the world, they would, they would say that, you know, the Lamb, that is definitely a biblical image. But in your mind, 
do you place the lamb with Christmas? When, you, when we think of the Lamb of God, oftentimes maybe it's, uh, it's connected to, to, to maybe, maybe Easter, but historically it's actually been connected to both. It's been connected to Christmas and Easter. The lambs are not specifically mentioned in the Christmas story. They are implied by the presence of shepherds. And also by the fact that Jesus was born in, in an inn or a stable-like outdoor structure. And He was laid in a manger which was a feeding trough for animals. So even though the word lamb in and of itself is not in connection with Jesus' birth, we know that there must have been many flocks in and around Bethlehem because the shepherds, when, they, uh, when, the, when the Lord you know, appeared to them uh, in the angel and then the host of the heavenlies are saying that, that Christ has been, been born. And so the Bible, the Bible makes connection between Jesus and lambs in all kinds of passages. Isaiah 53, the famous passage, He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth. He was led, speaking of Jesus, as a lamb to the slaughter. And as sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The famous John, uh, John 1, 29, and it says, behold, the Lamb of God. When he sees Jesus coming from afar off, behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, it says, purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened, for even Christ our Passover lamb is sacrificed for us. And then Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1, for as much as you know that you're not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold for your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, notice this, as the lamb without blemish and without spot. And then the book of Revelation that beautiful book of the Revelation, he is mentioned as the Lamb or the Lamb of God 30 plus times. So our emotional kind of connotations for the word Lamb, they're primarily positive, right? When you think of, when you think of a Lamb, you think of maybe gentle, helpless, they're friendly, they're innocent. Maybe some of those words come to mind. Compare that with the image of a snake, which is the image, obviously, of the evil one and of Satan. What are your, what are your thoughts about a snake? I would think that the vast majority in here were like, I, I don't like snakes. Any of you have pet snakes? Anybody? Vince, no, you were like, no one has a pet snake? Oh, you, you, you have? Not now? Yeah, so snakes are like, I don't like snakes. None of us want to see them out in the wild. None of us want to hear the, you know, of a rattler or anything like that. Snakes. Two animals couldn't be further apart on the emotional scale as you can get. But in order for us to understand this connection that I'm making, that, that, that Jesus Christ, he's the, he's the seed of the woman from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and now I'm making the claim that he is the very Lamb of God. We've got to get a biblical picture of Jesus as the Passover Lamb. If we're going to get the, the, the proper view of that, we're going to have to kind of leave our modern world, and we're going to have to go back some 35 centuries to the land of Egypt. 
And I want to show you this, this showdown that took place in Egypt. There, you're going to discover that the Jews, they're being held as slaves by the Egyptians. For 400 years, the, the Jews have lived in harsh, difficult conditions. Their generation, uh, the, the, their labor has been exploited by kind of cruel taskmasters. Uh, God raises up a leader named Moses. He goes before Pharaoh with the message of God saying, let my people go. They've been, they've been in bondage now for these 400 years. Pharaoh doesn't take the request or the command of God seriously. So Moses goes back several times with the same message from God, let my people go. But Pharaoh, he's got no intentions of obeying the God of the universe. He has no intentions of letting God's people and these slaves go free. So God gives a plan that is going to cause Pharaoh ultimately to send the Jews packing quickly. I mean, literally with, with urgency. He sends a series of terrible judgments which are called plagues in the book of Exodus on Egypt. Each one was representative of a terrible natural disaster, and each one shows God's complete power and complete control over His uh, created universe, reveals at the same time the impotence of the false gods of Egypt. There are nine plagues prior to the tenth that we will spend our time on today, the, the water into blood, the, the frogs, the gnats, the flies, the disease upon the livestock, the boils, the hail, the locusts, the darkness. The plague of darkness was a direct assault upon Ra, which was the, the sun god of Egypt. And since Pharaoh was considered the representative of Ra, this plague demonstrates that even Pharaoh is no match for God. None whatsoever. Although these plagues inflicted immeasurable suffering upon the people, what you read when you study the book of Exodus is that Pharaoh would continue to harden his heart. You know, let my people go. No. And then plague after plague. And each time, his heart would get harder and harder. And so instead of saying, you can go, he tries to make deals. First, he kind of offers, hey, you can just go a short distance out into the desert, but then you've got you've to come back. And then he offered that the men can go out, but, but the women and the children, they've got to stay. And then he offers, okay, all right, you can go, but your animals have to stay. And obviously, none of these um, options were acceptable. God does not make deals with pagan rulers. So finally, the moment has come for the tenth and final plague. The Lord told Moses, I don't want you to worry, when this final plague hits home, you're going to be released. Pharaoh's actually going to, is going to send you quickly. We read that in Exodus 11, verse 1. And the Lord said unto Moses, yet will I bring one more plague upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterwards, he will let you go hence. When he shall let you go, he shall surely thrust you out. Literally, she's going to thrust you out of here. He want, he's going to want you all to be gone. And this tenth plague at midnight, on a certain night, the Lord's going to go through the land of Egypt and every firstborn son in Egypt was going to die at the instant. You've been in church any length of time. You, you know maybe this story. He specified that no family was going to be excluded. 
from Pharaoh's household to the home and the lowest Egyptian slave. God would even include the firstborn cattle in this judgment. But God would spare the Israelites in order to make a distinction between God's people and Pharaoh's people. Exodus 12 reveals God's plan to to spare the Israelites from the midnight massacre of the firstborn. He would spare His people by using the blood of a lamb. And when the blood of the lamb was sprinkled and put upon the doorframe and the doorposts of each Jewish home, God would see the blood and He would pass over that home. But if God did not see the blood, He would not pass over. And that firstborn would die in that home. It was the blood of the lamb that saved the people of God that night. And ever since then, for literally 3,500 years and continuing to this very year, the Jews have observed Passover as a celebration of kind of a, a solemn reminder of God's amazing deliverance in Egypt. And so that's the context that we are speaking into here. It's not so much everyday life for us, but when you go and you see this you see this showdown kind of happening there between Pharaoh and Moses, who's ultimately connected to God. And we see that within that, we come to our second point this morning, and that is the Passover lamb. Even the minutest detail of the Passover seemed designed to point to Jesus Christ. This morning, we're looking at many of them, but mo- the most notable similarities between the events of the first Passover 3,500 years ago and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross as the ultimate Passover. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to I link these two together through the different elements of what God's requirement was for Him to pass over these homes? What type, of, uh, what type of lamb and how was that supposed to work for us? So let me start with this. It must be a lamb. It must be a lamb. We see that in Exodus 12, verse number 3. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for an house. So each man... Each man was to take a lamb for his own household. It could not be a bull. It could not be a dove, which was sometimes used in other Old Testament sacrifices. No, it was very, very specific. It it, it had to be a lamb. God was particular. It could only be a lamb. Nothing else would do. And so when John sees Jesus, he says what? Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. Paul says Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. Revelation, as I said, it it, it refers to Christ as the lamb of God some 30 plus times. And so this, for God to pass over, for God to not take that firstborn son, it had to be a lamb. But then it also had to be a male. Had to be a male. Verse number five, it says, Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. So, so it had to be a male. Jesus fulfilled this, obviously, because he was the son born of the Virgin Mary. 
But it also says in that verse there that it must be a one-year-old lamb. This means that the lamb must be in its prime, neither too young nor too old. And so Christ, Christ offered Himself up in the midst of His years. It wasn't in infancy as all of the other babies in Bethlehem did when Herod killed them two years old and younger because he didn't want the one born of the Jews to take any reign over, over him. And so, but Jesus, he was, uh, he was um, crucified. He offered himself up in the midst of his days. It also, according to Exodus 2.5, it must be without blemish. The Hebrew text here, the phrase that means without defect. Let's take a moment right now and uh, let's, pray for, let's pray for Carla right now, okay? Father, I come before you and uh, Lord, I pray that you, would, uh, that you would anoint her right now. I pray that you would touch her body, that you would allow this seizure to, uh, to cease and uh, Lord, that you would uh, please just do a, uh, do a divine miracle and work in her life right now. I pray that you'd help those that are uh, trying to minister and help her right now. And I'm thankful for them. And uh, God, we just, uh, we love Elizabeth and we love Carla so much. And uh, Lord, our hearts always just, they just ache. Lord, they, they cry out for healing for all these years. And Lord, I pray that that would be according to your will here in the near future. And God, I just pray that the, uh, the, 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 the grip of this seizure uh, would very quickly uh, be uh, removed from her. And Lord, we pray for your will to be done. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for allowing me to do that. Uh, and so we're just talking about this, um, the correlations between, between Christ and that, and, and that Passover lamb. And so according to Exodus 12, 3, it's got to be without blemish. Now, the Hebrew text here uses a phrase that means, hear me, without defect. So, that, that, so it, had, it couldn't have a blemish. It couldn't have a defect of any kind. This means that the Jewish men would have to carefully inspect their lambs to make sure that there were no open sores, no patches at all of bare skin, no infections, no diseases, no, no, no blotches or, or, or blemishes, no sickness of any kind. So this prevented a man from offering a lame or inferior creature while keeping the best for himself. Peter, he kind of he picks up on this theme when he's speaking about Jesus Christ being our lamb without blemish. In 1 Peter 1.19, but with the precious blood, our redemption is through the precious blood of Christ as the lamb without blemish and without spot. We know the, court, the author of Hebrews tells us that Christ was tempted at all points like we are, yet without sin. And so Christ is, this, is the, uh, the lamb that, that stands in our place without blemish, without sin. When Pontius Pilate, he, he finished examining Jesus, and he declared in John 19, when the chief priests thereof and officers saw him, they cried out saying, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto him, Take ye him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. So even Pilate, he just, there's no fault. He, there's, this is the sinless, um, without blemish 
Lamb of God in Jesus Christ. Even the hostile priests could find no just cause to put him to death. So they kind of trumped up some, some false claims about him. Now, it may be significant that the Passover lamb was selected on the tenth day of the month, but it was not sacrificed until the fourteenth day. You can read that in, in Exodus 12. So, selected on the tenth of the month, but then it is slain, it's, it's killed on the fourteenth of the day. That gave four days to carefully examine the lamb. During the days after Christ's triumphal entry into the city on that, uh, on, that, on that Sunday before we celebrate Easter, on His triumphal entry, and then all of the days that week, they're trying to, trying to catch Jesus. They're trying, to, they're trying to find fault in Jesus, and yet they couldn't during that time. They couldn't find even the smallest flaw in the character of our Savior. So this lamb had to be without blemish. It must be slain and roasted. Exodus 12 is quite clear on this point. All the lambs were to be slain at the same time, and the blood was drained from them. Then the carcasses were to be roasted and eaten whole. They, weren't to be, they were not to be boiled. They were not to be eaten raw. Those were both pagan customs of that day. Anything left over was to be burned. Thus, the lamb was to be completely consumed. And so both the slain and the roasting picture the sufferings of Christ on the cross. Not only did He die, but His death itself was a complete sacrifice. He died the death of a criminal hanging on a hated Roman cross. He was rejected by the world that He came to save. But this lamb must also have no broken bones. Mm. Exodus 12.46 And no carry forth, shall not carry forth out of the flesh, abroad out of the house, neither shall ye break a bone thereof. See, it was the custom of the Romans to break the legs of those that they had crucified. If they had been up there for too long, or, you know, just they would come and they would, they would break their legs, and so they could no longer pull themselves up with the strength of their legs to try to breathe, and, and they, they, would, they would hasten their death. John 12, verse 39 says, Then came the soldiers and break the legs of the first and of the other which was crucified with him. The him is referring to Jesus. So Jesus is in the middle and he's got the two thieves. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they break not his legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side and forthwith came out blood and water. And he that saw it bear record and his record is true that he knoweth not that he saith true that ye might believe for these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. So verse 36 in that passage points out that this happened to fulfill the scripture. Although the quoted verse happens to be from Psalm 34.20, which is the ultimate reference that comes back to Exodus 12, it says, He keepeth all his bones, not one of them is broken. And so this is the prophecy going all the way back to Exodus that this Passover lamb, that this slain lamb could not have even a broken bone. And then in Christ's death on the cross, his bones were broken. No, not broken, broken either. 
Here's another correlation. It must be offered between the evenings. I'm going to explain this here in a moment. This is, this is powerful. Between the evenings. This unusual phrase is a literal translation of the Hebrew phrase that's found in verse 6 of Exodus 12. And ye shall keep it up until the 14th day of the same month. So you select it on the 10th, and now you keep it till the 14th day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. So the Hebrew words here literally, literally mean like the, the twilight between the evenings. Which, hear me, in the Jewish world, that, that, that thought meant between 3 and 5 p.m., kind of between the evenings. The New Testament, hear me, tells us that Jesus Christ was crucified in the third hour, meaning 9 a.m. The reason why it was 9 a.m., because the Jewish day started at 6 a.m. Okay, so it would go from 6 to 6. Obviously, we go from midnight to we do it, but, but in, this, in this Jewish culture here, they would go from 6 a.m. to 6 a.m. And so Jesus Christ was crucified in the third hour, so he's crucified at 9 a.m., okay? They have a 24-hour period beginning at 6 a.m. Matthew 27 tells us that there was darkness from the sixth hour until the ninth hour. So that is from 12 to three. Again, that third hour, it's not 3, 3 a.m., it's 6 a.m., so now it's ninth hour until noon. So it's noon to three because you gotta, you've got you, you, to pull it back three, three hours. And it says that in verse number 45 of Matthew 27. So shortly thereafter, Jesus utters his final words. It is finished, and to thy hands... I commend my spirit. He, he finishes his final words. He dies. His body was then taken down from the cross before sundown. Thus, hear me, Jesus died between the evenings. Jesus officially died between 3 and 5 p.m., when everyone else would have been slain their Passover lamb. Because he died at this time. Wow. I told some of the people last week, I'm like, doctrine really excites me. <laughs> I love it. Amazing. That the, that the lamb that was supposed to be slain at the very first Passover to rescue them from out of Egypt on that tenth plague, literally lines up perfectly when the Lamb of God, when Jesus Christ would be dying between the evenings. It's a requirement. Let me give you another requirement. It must be sacrificed by all the people. See, Exodus 12 stresses that the Lamb must be offered by every man for every family in Israel. And all the lambs must be slaughtered by a precisely at the, the same time, between that three and five, uh, you know, the, between the evenings. Thus the lambs represented the total participation of the nation in this blood sacrifice. So Christ's death was made as a sacrifice for the sins of the entire world. 
What many lambs did for many people, Jesus, the Lamb of God, did for all people. Let me give you another correlation. The blood must be applied. It must be sprinkled. Again, Exodus is very specific in describing the ritual. Once the lamb had been slaughtered, the blood had to be drained. And then the father had to take some hyssop, which was like a, a leafy brush. And they were to take that and they were literally to apply it to uh, the door frame in the posts of the door. So obviously when the angel of the Lord were going to come through, they would see the blood applied and they would pass over that house. So the blood would be a sign that the family had sacrificed the lamb. And of course, then the just as the Lord had commanded. We see that in verse number 13. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where ye are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. So this picture, listen, this picture here is not, hear me, not so much the death of Christ, but our application of his death to the walls of our heart, so to speak. And that's why 1 Peter 1-2, Peter talks about the sprinkling of the blood of Christ. The Lamb alone, hear me, could not save Israelites. Not even a dead lamb could save. Not even the blood still in the basin could save. Only the blood applied could be what saves them. Think of it this way. Jesus Christ, He is our only hope of salvation. He is God's Lamb offered for the sins of the world. However, Jesus' blood, um, blood saves, but only after it's applied. Only after it's, in, in our, in our kind of the way we would talk about it today, only after it's accepted by faith. Only after we believe that this is the, the way in which God is going to save us. Just like those Israelites had to believe in what God had said through the prophet Moses, that this is what is going to save your family. So if there would have been a single Israelite family that would have said, you know what, eh, ah, this isn't for me, that firstborn would have died. So this was the object. This was the plan. It was going to be a lamb. And the object of our faith is the Lamb of God is Christ. It is God's way, God the Father's way of reconciling us to Him. It is through a lamb. It must be applied. But also, it must be fully consumed. Not only was the blood shed and the meat roasted, but the family was to, to eat the meat together. And they were to eat it with bitter herbs and unleavened bread. This was a, always to be a reminder of them, of their days in Egypt. They weren't allowed to keep the meat for later use. Any part that was not eaten must have been burned. So the Israelites signified their complete participation in the death of the Lamb. His life was taken. His blood was shed. The blood was applied. The meat was roasted. And the meat was consumed. Through these measures, the Jews were reminded that the redemption came through the death of a substitute. The lamb was dying in their place. By eating its meat, they signified their complete identification with the lamb who had died for them. This meaning for us is plain. Do you remember when Christ says in John 6 that you must eat my flesh and drink my blood? 
Jesus used this verse, but he's not speaking of the literal flesh and the literal blood, but of saving faith. That's what it's all about. We're to take Christ completely. We're to take Christ wholly, absolutely, and without qualification. And when we take Him as our Savior in this manner, it is like eating and drinking at a feast. Christ. And you know maybe the rest of the story. The death angel, there's, there's more correlations, but the death angel comes and sees the blood applied and passes over home after home after home. But when it came to the Egyptian homes, you began to hear the shrieks and the cries of moms and dads that wake up and realize that one of their children, the firstborn, that the life has been snuffed out of them. Soon after that, the Pharaoh sends the Israelites packing. It's like, you need to get out of here. Now you know that ultimately he comes chasing back after him and then they part the Red Sea. But for this particular part, he just says, get out of here. Just like God told Moses would happen. And so he knew they would be moving soon. And it's in that same way. And that's why he told him, I want you to eat your Passover meal quickly in haste. Because he's going to send you. So in the same way, through the blood of Christ, the great Lamb of God, we are safe from God's wrath and we are set free from the penalty of sin. In Him and through Him and by Him, God has delivered His people once and for all. So let me do what I did last week. That Old Testament story, right? How does that Old Testament story of the land that provided the Passover and then of course some 2,000 years ago or so when Christ laid His life down as the Lamb of God, how does that, how does that affect you today? How does, that, how does that speak into your life today? How does, Ryan, how is this going to help me? How's it going to help me? Let me start off by saying this, that Jesus Christ is God's Lamb. He is the only person who meets these qualifications. He fulfills every detail of the Holy Priest, excuse me, the, 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 the Old Testament picture here. No other person in the Bible meets these requirements. But this explains a touching part of the Christmas story. You remember when Simeon, that, that, that aged man, he comes in and he holds the baby Jesus in, in his hands and he blesses him? And he says that Jesus would be the cause of the rising and the falling of many in Israel. Thus indicating that, 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 that while some would follow him, others were going to bitterly oppose him. And then Simeon adds these words to Mary. Yea, a sword, in Luke 2, shall pierce through thy own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. This was the early reference to the death that Jesus would die. From the very beginning, he was marked, Jesus was, as the Lamb of God. He was going to be the substitute. He was born to die. Although Mary could not at this time know all of these details, from the earliest days she knew that suffering was going to be connected to this birth, to, this, to her son being born. That is why so many of the great artists that have tried to, port in, in picture form, kind of paint Mary and, her, and the Christ child, Mary is often very somber looking because at this birth there was going to be suffering. Since the lamb must die in order for the blood to save, 
Jesus must someday die so that his blood must be shed so that it might save. Jesus is, the, the God, is God's lamb. How else does this apply? There is no salvation without sacrifice. None. There's no salvation without this story. There's no salvation without the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9.22 says, and almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. There is no forgiveness. Listen, a living lamb may be cute and cuddly, but it saves no one. Unless the lamb dies, his blood does no good. In God's economy, only shed blood can forgive sin. And as the great lamb of God, Jesus must go to the cross. Jesus must be willing to shed his blood. Why? For the forgiveness of your sins and the forgiveness of my sins and the forgiveness of the sins of the whole world if they will allow it to be applied to their life. The British preacher Brown Law North, he lived a wicked life before, uh, before he was saved. And one evening he was entering into the church and someone handed him a letter and he said, you've, you've, you've got to read this letter before you stand up to preach. And he thought to himself and he said, okay, well maybe uh, they've, they've handed me uh, letters before, maybe it's some prayer request. And, and so he decides to open the letter and the words of this letter literally detailed all of the things that he had done in his past. And then at the end of the letter it said this, North says, how dare you, being conscious of the truth of all the above, all of the list of the sins, pray and speak to the people this evening when you were such a vile sinner. He took the letter, he put it in his pocket, and he got up before a packed congregation and he began to tell them what the contents of the letter was all about. And he went on to say this, what is said in this letter is true and it is a correct picture of the degraded sinner that I once was. And oh, how wonderful must the grace be that could, be quick, that, that could quicken and raise me up from such trespasses and sins and make me what I appear before you tonight, a vessel of mercy, one who knows that all his past sins have been cleansed away through the atoning of the Lamb of God. So Jesus Christ, he is the Lamb. God has required, and through that lamb, through that shedding of the blood, there is no remission of sin. There's no forgiveness given apart from accepting this lamb. And then let me say finally, even Jesus will not save you without faith. You might say, you know, th th this story, it's absurd, but I assure you that is entirely true. Suppose an Israelite had refused to sacrifice a lamb. His, for, his firstborn son, uh, firstborn would have died that night. Being a Jew could not have saved him from that fearful night. It wasn't a national origin that mattered to God, but faith in God's appointed way of salvation. The same is true for church members or, or, or people that come here. Listen, Redwood, I love this church. I love the people of this church, but guess what? We can't save you. Becoming a part of this church, coming here, does not save anyone. It doesn't help in anything with eternity. 
When God looks down from heaven, the only thing that matters is that He sees the blood of the Lamb applied to your life and to your heart so you can be forgiven of your sins. You need a Lamb. And it must meet the requirements laid out by God in Exodus 12. And that lamb must die. You must apply the blood to the doorpost, so to speak, of your heart. You've got to believe God's system, God's way by faith that you are a sinner and Christ took your place. See, those Israelites were still sinners, but they had salvation. They had freedom. They had rescue in another, in the scapegoat, in the, in the land that was taking their place. And Jesus took your place. And Jesus took my place. And all he requires of you and all he requires of me is for us to acknowledge that we are a sinner and that we are separated from God and that we place our faith in our rescuer, Lamb of God. He's the Lamb of God. Where will you find such a Lamb? The cross. Look to the cross. Gaze upon the bleeding Son of God. Behold the Lamb of God, John said, who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the Lamb that you need. He's God's Lamb for your sin. Let the people of God rejoice, for the Lamb of God has been sacrificed for them. But then also, this Christmas time, let us kind of be, be sober minded that that baby that was born in a manger was born to die, to rescue you and to rescue me. Christ, before the line, he was prophesied all the way back in Genesis 3.15, the moment sin enters into the world, God says, I'm going to rescue you. And then he rescues the Israelites in glorious fashion to ultimately bring Christ for you and for me. If you don't know him as your Savior, literally you place your faith in what God says, that Christ died for you and you accept him as your Savior. Literally, it's not harder than that. No other metric. There's no, what do I say, Ryan? You pray before God and you say, Lord, I'm a sinner and I need saving and I'm trusting your avenue for that salvation. And if you're seated here and you need to trust him as your Savior, make today that day. And Christian, I want you to be amazed again at who you have as a Savior. He met perfectly the demands of God to pass over you so that you can have eternity. Jesus is that awesome Lamb of God. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Right now, in the quietness of this room, would you ask the Lord to cause you to marvel and wonder again at the amazing story of the Lamb of God? And if you're seated here and you don't know Christ as your Savior, would you in your heart right now say, Lord, I know that I am a sinner. Lord, I know that I can't save myself. And I'm asking your son, your lamb, 
Jesus Christ, to rescue me from my sin. Forgive me of my sin. And the Word of God tells you that for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, Paul said in Hebrews 10, will be saved. There's no more hoops than that. Nothing else we can do but accept the Lamb that God has provided for us. His Son, Jesus Christ. What a Savior we have. The Lamb. And if you know Him, celebrate Him in your heart. And in your life, these weeks leading up to Christmas, 